Welcome to ASM Connected, the podcast brought to you from ASM Technologies. In this episode, ASM Technologies' Ian Tomkinson and Stephen Dale are joined by Brett King, a world-renowned futurist and speaker, an international best-selling author, and a media personality who covers the future of business. Brett has spoken in over 50 countries in recent years, at TED conferences, given opening keynotes for Wired, The Economist, CES and more. He even advised the Obama administration on fintech policy and advises regulators and banks around the world on technology transformation. In conversation, Brett discusses agility, technology and innovation in the finance sector, how we'll interact with technology in the future for different services, the impact of digital transactions globally, and how the finance sector needs to adapt and improve its use of technology in the future. All of that's coming up. This is ASM Connected. So welcome back to the ASM Connected podcast. I'm Stephen Dale, joined as usual by my colleague Ian Tomkinson. And today, I'm really pleased to introduce our guest, Brett King. Brett is an author, a fintech hall of famer, radio host, international speaker, and futurist. Just to start us off, really, Brett, I'd like to ask you, from a technology perspective, what does innovation mean to you? How do you define it? Uh, Well, you know, I think one of the really interesting ways to view technology and its role in the world, and this also ties into the whole futurist thing, is being a good futurist, you have to really study the past. You know, you have to understand human behavior and what has gone before. And, you know, what we learn is that over the last 250 years, there's not a single industry that hasn't been transformed by technology And the number of industries that have successfully defended their traditional business models against innovation is exactly zero. The the thing that sort of amuses me or the the thing that um, I can't quite wrap my head around as an innovator, as a technologist, as a futurist, is why do we resist technology's advance you know um you know whenever you have an innovation hitting a new industry like we see fintech disrupting financial services right now you will always always get the incumbents who argue it's never going to work you know people want to see a person to get a bank account um you know and they'll defend it with their dying breath when from a precedent perspective there's absolutely zero evidence to support the assertion that this industry is going to be unaffected by technology And so we need to spend a lot more time planning how innovation should impact the world rather than arguing if it's going to change the world. And I think that's the main message that I've been trying to articulate really the last 10 years or so. No, I like it. It's obviously it's earing on that optimistic side of a definition of innovation and embrace it, ride the wave, go with the flow. So I know Ian's been reading your books. I know um, he's keen to sort of get some questions in. Yeah, I like to do my research. And uh, <laughs> yeah, no, fascinating. I read your book, Augmented. One of the things that I picked up on and, and I thought about a lot, the way that smartphones and consumers use smartphones to access things. And you said at the time that that was in its infancy. That was quite a bold statement even then and that to say that it was in its infancy. How far have we come since then and how far can we go with that smartphone connection? Well, I think you have to look at it as sort of the evolution of computing 
infused into our world. The smartphones did some in, some interesting things. First of all, compared with a mouse and a keyboard, a smartphone was both easier and harder to use. You have a situation where you can you know navigate with a multi-touch screen, but the keyboard accuracy was nowhere near the accuracy of a QWERTY keyboard. And but then what we have is the emergence of voice and gestures and other ways of interfacing with the computer that have emerged. And so we use facial recognition to secure our phones, as an example. So looking at it in the cycle of technology, the smartphone was really important because it made the computing device that we use every day very human, highly usable, and put it in context where we could use it when and where we were going about our daily lives, sitting on a train or as a passenger in a a car or walking along the street. But you follow that trajectory on, and then we can talk to computers, they can recognize us, they can anticipate our needs. Computing just becomes like electricity built into the world around us. And so that's really the trend. And if you think about um, during the pandemic, our reliance on apps for grocery delivery and for restaurant uh, delivery and so forth, that's all just part of the digital services layer in the world around us that adapts to the use of ubiquitous technology. So if you want to look at what makes 21st century economies versus 19th and 20th century economies different is that dominantly the day-to-day services we will use, whether it's banking, healthcare, education, food and groceries, et cetera, will be delivered through a digital services layer. That is, whether it's asking your voice-activated speaker for a service or whether it's interacting with your smart glasses or smartphone or whatever the device is to have access to medical services in the future, you'll need a digital identity, you'll pay digitally, you'll access you know, medicine through telemedicine. All of the services of the 21st century would be sort of part of this digital infrastructure. And so the smartphone is part of the transition to that world. I saw one of your uh, speaking uh, sessions and you were saying that you were able to walk into a car showroom with your smart glasses on and you are able to look at it and basically your finance company will tell you that you've been looking at it and uh, if you can afford it or not and if you'll be able to pay your mortgage if you do buy it, which is quite scary stuff really. Some people look at it as scary. I, I look at it as it's the application of data that's already out there, but to you individually in terms of your behavior or your needs or the world that you have. And ultimately, you know, right now what we have is we have a bunch of services with some personalization, but in the future, the way artificial intelligence will work is sort of really trying to optimize your day, optimize your behavior and your experience at all times. So for example, credit cards won't exist in the future because if you need credit, it will be provided based on the context of the problem you face. So let's say you walk into a grocery store and you don't have enough money to buy your groceries. Now, at the time you walk in the grocery store, you may be completely unaware of this because it may be that your salary hasn't hit your account yet. You've expected it to and it hasn't. Uh, It may be that your mortgage payment came out and you forgot that the mortgage payment was going to go out. So here you are in the grocery store stacking up the groceries and what happens? 
you get to the checkout and your transactions declined. I'd like to avoid that embarrassment. So imagine if you walk in the grocery store and your smartphone gives you a message and says, hey, it looks like your salary hasn't hit the account yet. Looks like you don't have enough money for your groceries because when you're in, um, I don't know, Sainsbury's, uh, you know, or Tesco, you normally spend, you know, 250 pounds and you've only got 100 pounds in your account today. Here's an extra 150 pounds to complete your grocery shopping. The fee for that is two pounds 50. Would you like to proceed? And that's a great option. And it's a much better option than me getting to the checkout and having my card declined and, you know, having to sort of fish for another payment solution. And so we're within reach of that sort of capability right now and also you know more than that coaching you on how to use your money where you can go grocery shopping to save a few dollars um, you know what's the right time of the week or the time of the day to buy stuff you know we're within grasp of that sort of level of improvement in quality of life around things like financial transactions but also for things like medical advice so instead of waiting for you to get sick and go to the doctors do that sort of preventative maintenance of your health and may know your when you're sick even before you do there's some brett there's some really exciting um applications of the new technology there and the example that you've given about walking into the shop and being presented with that data what i like about that is that's not it's not a massive step change is it? it's not something almost beyond the realms of our imaginations because like you said that information is already there it's just presenting itself and bringing it in at the right time so when i'm thinking about the pace of innovation and how this technology emerges what might hold it back and slow it down? And particularly in the finance sector, obviously we know it's a highly regulated industry. We don't want to sort of depress everyone with compliance and everything else. But I'm interested in knowing whether that constraint of regulation, does that hold things back? Does it constrain that innovation or or actually does it drive us on to find ways around it? Uh, well, in most cases, it holds us back. So, for example, you know, where I am here in the United States, um, roughly 20% of US households are unbanked. That is, they have to rely on cash and checks and check cashing services and things like that because they don't have access to a you know traditional day-to-day bank account. Now, in 1977, the United States recognized the problem of financial inclusion. And so they put a law in place which says that if you're the last bank in a city or a town, you can't close your bank branch because the bank is a vital point of access for financial inclusion. That has turned into now a law that means that if you're a bank and you're trying to start a bank, invariably you're going to have to build bank branches because you have to comply with the CRA. But we know today that the mobile phone, as an example, has financially included over a billion people that didn't have access to banking beforehand through mobile wallets mostly in countries like uh, Kenya with M-Pesa and you know uh, Paytm in India and so forth. So we know that um, you know the mobile phone is a far better device to create financial inclusion than the branch was. And yet changing that law in the United States has become extremely problematic. And so, you know, you've got this uh, situation where from a regulatory perspective, we have a tool that would dramatically improve financial inclusion in the United States. And yet the current regulations, you know, essentially exclude a smartphone as a device that is capable of doing that. That's just one illustration. 
But, you know, for example, we have a lot of big tech players now that are entering the financial services uh, domain, such as organizations like Alipay or Tencent WeChat Pay out of China. Most people probably don't realize that just those two mobile wallets that emerged out of China, but are now available in about 150 countries, those mobile wallets did twice the volume of payments last year in 2020 than all of the plastic cards in all of the world combined. And so from a regulatory perspective, the number one day-to-day banking artifact is a mobile wallet. And yet in many parts of the world, you can't use those wallets unless there's a bank that's connected behind it. Whereas in China, when these mobile wallets started, and now they're facing greater regulation, but they were just technology companies that would allow you to use these mobile wallets to pay. And so in answer to your question, yeah, regulation tends to slow innovation until we see a precedent in some other market or something sort of breaks away in terms of innovation that isn't compliant. And then the regulators have to make a decision. Do they make that illegal and stop it? Or is it a broad benefit to the community? And so do they change regulations to allow it? And so in the case of M-Pesa in Kenya, for example, that's what happened. It was an experiment. It broke out into something that now 98% of the you know, Kenyan population use. And so the governor of the central bank in Kenya, to his credit, said, this is good for Kenya and good for financial inclusion and let's allow it and let's give M-Pesa a type of banking license that allows them to take deposit but doesn't need them to be a bank. I love hearing those stories about the sort of emerging developing countries that have not taken that linear approach. And I think moving forward in the natural steps or even trying to play catch up through those natural steps is going to be difficult. But what I like is the way that they've made that step change and missed out entire generations and eras of banking and just hit that fast forward button. So I think think that's a great example for other parts of the world to um, learn from, really. Yeah, and and just, uh, I suppose, uh, adding to the future of finance, we we all know that AI is already a big player in finance and uh, things like genetics, machine learning, and probably robots are all part of the future of finance. I suppose the question that I was going to is how open is the finance sector? Are they able to push those technologies on and uh, you know, how receptive are they, uh, perhaps compared with other sectors such as medical, which you've already touched on? Um, it depends on the technology and it depends on the organization in, in many respects. You know, um, Blockchain, as an example, is a technology that Um, shows real promise in terms of payments and identity infrastructure, for example. It's been used quite broadly in China as part of the banking system, but there's really nowhere else that blockchain has had that sort of take up and adoption. You know, in terms of artificial intelligence, you know, there are areas uh, where AI uh, is already extremely useful, uh, such as fraud detection in the United States. But in terms of using it more broadly for simple things like helping consumers improve their financial health, we've seen a reluctance on that side of it. We also, uh, you know, have had issues with machine learning models, and, um, you know, using existing policy and existing process that has embedded bias in it, you know, and so there's, there's things that, that need to be addressed. Having said that, whether the 
industry is open to it or not, I don't think it's going to change the outcome at all. I think artificial intelligence is going to be part of the future. And so, you know, again, I come back to that central premise is, you know, we should be looking at how to introduce artificial intelligence more effectively into society. And I, I think, you know, we, we'd be better off experimenting with it or regulating it in a way that makes sense. For example, you know, creating some ethical standards by which AI should be implemented at a corporate level or, you know, in respect to your finances or banking, as an example. You know, that would be more useful as a way to sort of roll this stuff out than, you know, sort of the fits and starts with which we have today. But look, I think... The big shift probably will be what we call robotic process automation, where, you know, if you can teach a human to follow a checklist, then we can use artificial intelligence to do that same thing. And so approving a loan or a mortgage or a credit facility, you know, typically that has had a credit risk process associated where a human has had to tick off the boxes before you get a, a loan. That can be automated. Trading is largely automated now. There's large portions of the banking um, space that will be just automated through the use of AI. In fact, about 40 to 50% of jobs in banks as they are today will disappear as a result of that level of automation. So that's the big issue. How are we going to respond to banks that are you know, essentially black boxes with some imports that don't have a lot of humans in them and the fact that you know, we are going to see you know, um, uh, many, many people laid off as a result of automation or we're going to have to find ways to retrain them into new careers that sort of fit the bill from a technology perspective. So it's going to be pretty disruptive. And I suppose um, our audience, um, a lot of the large uh, IT systems integrators and resellers who are selling into the financial sector, they'll be, I suppose, uh, looking to uh, have uh, meaningful conversations with, with their customers. If you were uh, in front of the customer, what kind of conversations would you be having with, with the banks in terms of you know what the next thing is that, that they should be looking at? One area that we need to solve for the 21st century, and we're seeing it right now with the pandemic, um, is you know better identity infrastructure and banks have an enormous and a natural role to play in this. Uh, They could be part of trusted identity networks uh, that are used. Because, you know, if you think about how you apply for a bank account today, you go in, you know, you have to, what's your mother's maiden name? What's your address, your date of birth? You know, five years ago, where was your residence? You know, we use this type of data to secure or to identify someone these days. But that data is no longer securable going into a bank and filling out an application form, you do so understanding that that bank doesn't have adequate security to protect your bank account today. Because those pieces of identity information that we put on an application form can easily be uncovered in today's world. So we need better identity. We need biometrics. We need behavior, uh, like heuristics, uh, um, you know, and so forth. And to illustrate this, you know, I talked about before Alipay and Tencent WeChat Pay. 
So Alipay um, supports Alibaba's Singles Day in China. November the 11th last year, you know, they did billions of dollars of trade in a single day. At peak, they were processing 460,000 transactions per second. Now, that's a bit huge. I mean, Visa's global network can process at peak about 32,000 transactions per second. So we're talking about 10 times the volume of, of Visa's network at peak. And yet their fraud rates, because of the use of biometrics, including facial recognition, was just 0.0006 basis points of fraud. But if you live in the UK or the United States and you use your credit card online, card not present transactions have a rate of 11.2 basis points of fraud. So 10,000 times what uh, Alipay's network has. Now, I understand that people have concerns about facial recognition and civil liberties, but I think people should also be fundamentally aware that if they're not choosing these technologies, if we're not integrating these technologies, then we're accepting far, far higher rates of identity theft and and fraud online than, than we have to. And so I would be saying to banks, how are you going to make banking safer for your customers, number one. Secondly, coming off the back of the pandemic, you know, a lot of people have economic stress and economic uncertainty because of the economic effects of the pandemic. So what are you going to do over the next few years with the technology you have to help people save more money and, you know, get financially healthier again? I'd probably start with those two. Okay. Great. No, and uh, that that sort of uh, privacy um, with the facial recognition, I, I, I suppose that's the case of uh, if you give a bit more data, you, you actually protect your own data scenario, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And um, we use it coming into borders. In the UK, you, if you come into Heathrow and you're a UK citizen, you're most likely going to use facial recognition to enter the country through a turnstile that has facial recognition equipped. So we use this technology every day. And, it, you know, I, I don't think we need to be afraid of it. I think what we need to do is just be more transparent and educate the public about the fact that the rewards for using this technology are far greater than the risks uh, of using this technology in terms of abuse. I think there's some uh, fantastic takeaways there, Brett, that's really going to help our listeners. One thing I'm interested in, and as much as we would love to talk about this all day, I think one way that we can keep abreast of this conversation and further developments is obviously to follow your new book, which I know is coming out soon. And what I find interesting in the conversations we've been having on the podcast this series about technology, innovation, emerging technology, they've very often taken an angle that was almost unexpected when we start talking about social aspects and philosophy and ethics. It's not necessarily where we mean to take it, but it's where it keeps going. So keen to sort of understand understand a little bit more about the the book you've got coming out and what we're going to be able to learn from that because it seems to be edging in that direction as well. Yeah, well, you know, in terms of the new book, the the new book sort of emerged out of many discussions and debates, but really about coming off the back of the pandemic and also understanding that we have the greatest inequality that the world has seen, at least since the Middle Ages, if not worse today, in countries like the United States and Britain and Australia, where I'm from, growing inequality, growing economic uncertainty. And then we're about to throw artificial intelligence into the mix, which uh, is going to change you know, employment patterns. And we've got climate change emerging. And so the potential for 
greater inequality and greater economic uncertainty over the next 20, 30 years is, is this is the greatest uh, collection of crises that humanity is likely to face. And so, uh, you know, really the book was about do we have the tools in the current system to solve these problems or do we need to think differently about the way humanity should, um, you know, proceed? And that's really what the book does. It debates, uh, it debates the different ways of governing and the different forms of economics uh, that we would have traditionally applied and, um, you know, plays those out over the next 30 to 50 years and says, all right, if we keep capitalism as it is, and we keep the way governance as it is, will this result in solutions to these problems? And the answer to that is no, right? So how do we have an optimal form of humanity? You know, how do we organize as a human species to give every human the best chance possible to create, you know, sustainable prosperity for the planet, living in harmony with the planet and so forth? And that's that's sort of really what we tried to tackle in the book. And we looked at two major axes in terms of the way we plotted these futures. One was inequality um, versus uh, inclusion. So exclusionary policies and economies versus inclusive. And then we looked at planned versus chaotic futures. And so where we really commit to um, planning through these futures that we have or where we just let it happen and let's see, see if the free market develops a solution for it. Um, and so we came up with four different options in terms of the future. And there was only one that was optimal, which was a highly planned, highly technology-driven technology, uh, future. All of the rest resulted in far greater deaths and far greater um, issues with poverty and exclusion than they have to. And now I, I know some people are, are going to debate this, but that is exactly what the book is designed to do. Let's have a grown-up conversation about how humanity needs to behave in respect to you know, everyone else that's on the planet, including the other species that live on the planet with us. I, I completely agree. And uh, yeah, that's a great vision for the future. Couple of wind down questions just to sort of take us through to the end. And uh, first one, really probably a simple question. I know uh, most people have a, a favorite tech gadget. What's yours? Um, well, you know, I, I use my, I've got a couple of smartphones. I use them obviously daily multiple times. I probably use my iPhone more than I do my Samsung Galaxy. Um, but I'm also a gamer. And so, you know, my uh, gaming devices, probably the one I use the most right now is. My, my PC, but I'm also um, you know, a fan of the Oculus uh, VR headset. You know, there's some pretty incredible VR uh, improvements being made right now. And um, yeah, you know, sort of gaming devices is, is sort of how I unwind personally. And uh, finally, um, have you got a favorite sport or do you play sport or? Um, yeah, well, it's difficult being an, an Aussie offshore in that, um, you know, um, like, you know, supporting my my home Aussie rules football team, you know, there's not much chance to sort of do that. Um, you know, there'll be a bit of a gathering at some of the Australian pubs around uh, New York, and there's two or three of them where you'll get together for the grand final. You know, I do follow the uh, the recent tests in, in the UK, the cricket tests, and have tended to be a bit of a fan of the cricket. I like the 2020 format and stuff that has emerged over the last few years. Um, but, you know, my mum my was from Birmingham and 
my grandfather was a Man U supporter. So if you're asking about the Premier League, I'd have to say that, uh, you know, I still sort of identify with Man U, even though, um, you know, it's rare that I get to see the, the matches uh, in the UK. But if you're asking my Aussie rules uh, team, it'd be Collingwood. I don't know if you heard of them. I haven't, no, and I have seen some Aussie, Aussie rules, and uh, even though I, I also like the rugby, uh, watching Aussie rules is just, yeah, I just think, wow. It's a really <laughs> interesting game. It's quite an interesting spectacle, but if uh, if you ever get the chance to, uh, you know, to see a match in Australia, I would strongly suggest you avail yourself of it. Absolutely. Great. Well, it's been fantastic to uh, have you as our guest today. Um, Some really insightful information there for for our audience. Thank you very much for the time you took today. Steve, uh, have you got anything to add? No, just really enjoyed it. Look forward to the book coming out. And one of my favourite things that you've talked about here is it sounds as if the future of the Leisure Society is still on the cards. So, uh, yeah, I'm willing that comes. (laughs) Oh, definitely. Yeah, experience. Yeah, experience-based economies. If you think about that, if you've got a lot more time on your hands and so forth, the whole experience-based economies, you know, uh, uh, adventure-based travel, um, you know, immersive stuff, it's it's all going to be big. But if, uh, if, if your listeners are interested in the book, they can go to www.riseoftechnosocialism.com and they can check out the trailer for the book, the video trailer for the book, and uh, it links to pre-orders in the UK. You can go to, obviously, Amazon in the UK and bookdepository.co.uk to, to pre-order as well. Great. Um, we'll get our uh, copy on order. Thanks for your time, Brett. Much appreciated, and you take care. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of ASM Connected, the podcast from ASM Technologies with guest Brett King. If you want to find out more about ASM Technologies or anything discussed in this episode, visit asmtech.com. And if you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe now and never miss an update. Thanks for listening to ASM Connected.